Welcome to this week's episode of Between the Vines. My name is Kevin Martin. I'm here with Andy Musa and special guest, Dr. Kane Hickey. Uh, Kane's actually part of our great team in Penn State. Uh, he's not necessarily a regular contributor, but we'll get him here more often because he's got some interesting perspective on what's going on in the Southeast, which is sort of the heart of the, the um, more emerging wine industry in Pennsylvania. Uh, great climate to grow some vinifera down there uh, compared to some of the the chilling, cool climate stuff we've got going on out here, but they do have their own challenges. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. And uh, we do want to update you a little bit on how harvest is progressing or or maybe not progressing, depending on what you're trying to harvest here locally in the Lake Erie region. Uh, Kane, do you want to take a second to introduce yourself to the audience? It's good sure. to have you. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. My name is Kane Hickey. And I am the viticulture extension educator at Penn State and um, just work with Kevin and Andy and the rest of the grape and wine team at Penn State, um, the ever-growing uh, grape and wine team at, at Penn State. Yeah, a long time ago, Kane was up at Clarell as well. So he's worked here locally in the region. He's from Northeast, Northeast PA. So uh, when he was, uh, was that your postdoc at the time? Were you already a PhD? Yeah. Guy? Yeah. yeah. What was my postdoc? And then I've known you and Andy from even before that, because I, I worked at the, the Northeast uh, Grape Extension Lab uh, when I was home from my uh, undergrad pursuits at Penn State. So uh, yeah, I, I've been around Pennsylvania for a while and glad to be back. Yeah, me too. I'm glad to have you back. Um, so what's going on in the Southeast? And I, I don't know where, where you want to start. We, you know, we haven't had an update Sure. Well, I can talk about, yeah, I can talk about general, like the South, Central, Southeast, sure. um, you know, Lehigh Valley, Lancaster, York, Chester, you know, that, that area. So we'll just call it Southeast for, for our, our purposes. But um, so I, I don't think we had an update on this on the, on the podcast. I know you have probably about the Lake Erie region, but we'll start way back in the winter when, um, when the, you know, really the, the crop potential set where pruning happens. And then if there's any cold injury events that can greatly, uh, you know, limit a crop or the crop potential. And this year, I think in general, I hesitate, you know, so I'll just go ahead and say this at the beginning, anything we say here does not mean it's ubiquitously applied. We're talking in generality. So for the one person who we say something about that, Hey, that, that was not true at my site. Forgive us, because you know there's lots of microclimates. But um, uh, in general, there was there's not a lot of remarkable cold injury events this past winter. Um, so that would then mean that the, the crop potential is is good coming out of winter. Because if whole vines uh, got injured and there was cold injury to trunks and cordons, that that reduces the number of bearing acre bearing vines per acre, and therefore your, your crop yield potential is reduced from the get go before bud break even happens, right? And then after that, I think there was just like there has been. It seems like it's been a perennial thing over the last uh, at least five years, perhaps more. That there's there's a, a threat of spring frost because things got moving early again this year, and it was no different in, in Lake Erie. And so, um, but I think for the most part, again, I, I, I don't want to make blanket statements for that one person that did get uh, hit by frost a little bit, but in general, we, we, we escaped that, that frost scare pretty well across, across the region. Okay. Um, one thing I will note to some listeners in case, uh, you know, Kane sends out a link and we get a bunch of, um, you know, a bunch of listeners from his region uh, tuning in. Uh, we 
I think it's going to be 2022, but it might be 2023. There will be a pilot crop insurance program for insurance of vines, and that will be active in Pennsylvania. Uh, so anywhere you can get crop insurance on a particular variety, you'll be able to insure the actual vine. So the point of that, for the most part in our climate, would be to insure against death from winter injury. And it's not insuring damage, it's just insuring death. And I think Andy and I have been around in circles about that for the tree fruit assistance program. And it's very similar to that. <laughs> it is I was going to say, what do they mean by death, Kevin? Because we mean death. They mean, you know, you better have a, a rootstock because, uh, you know, concords really don't like to die because they're own rooted. Um, but but this would be a tool to make you whole rather than I think people know from tree fruit assistance is you get some money and it's helpful, but you're certainly not made whole. It's not insurance. It's a program that provides some funding. So in 2022 or 2023, that'll be live as a pilot in Pennsylvania. Uh, and it might be in New York as well. And there, it's certainly going to be in Texas. That's where it got started and a few other states. But just if you're worried about winter injury and, and crop insurance is already part of your risk management tool, it is not a product that I recommend because it's not public yet. So I don't know what it's all about and I don't know who it's going to fit and who it's not going to fit, but just look out for it if it's something you're interested in. Good, yeah. Okay, not a lot of spring frost then onto the sort of next risk. <laughs> No, no. The year before, last 2020, the spring of 2020, I heard uh, some folks got hit by advective freeze events where it was it was windy and cold and it was an advective front that caused some damage. Not the typical radiation type frost that um, we, we think is more typical as being in, you know, damaging in the spring. So um, but this year, from what I understand, most people got through uh, pretty well. Uh, again, some some sites that were in low-lying areas, I know, had some secondary buds push and uh, as a as a function of frost. Um, but uh, again, it just seems like it's becoming a more common issue every spring. Like it's not it's not an anomaly to have the the threat of spring frost just because it seems things are getting started earlier uh, as climate's changing. I mean, are, are you guys seeing the same thing in Lake Erie? Oh yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I mean, bud break itself is pushed way earlier uh, on average. Uh, and bloom is, is also earlier and, but not as much. So it's a longer window. I, and I think you see, I think that longer window, you know, those are the two things we measure. You see more temperature volatility. So that's bad. <laughs> uh, and we had some, I think they were freeze events, but you know, we haven't talked a lot about the freeze that happened here locally in a while, because a lot of the concerns, you know, around a freeze event are, are or frost event or yield related. And most people came out of it really nicely. So I think 10, 15, maybe even 20% of our acreage had what they thought was a severe event. And it probably only, if you compare it to what our grower yields are on average and what their goals are, uh, only maybe five, 6% of them are gonna be significantly below their average yields. So everything else hit right and they recovered, whether it's super fruitful secondaries or gigantic berries, but everybody's looking at six to 12 ton crops or more if there wasn't a freeze. So so yeah, I, I think that was a freeze event. I don't think it was a frost, but I honestly don't remember off the top of my head because it, again, a lot of the growers around mid-June, early July sort of forgot about it yeah yeah we yeah. were we were to to hedge our bets we were calling it calling it a 
a freeze slash frost event. <laughs> it was definitely temp unusual temperature patterns. I mean, certain areas got frost. I mean, it, it hit traditional pockets, but certain people who microclimates who were not used to being frosted got hit harder than others that were. So it was a, a weird pattern. There, there was some high wind one of the nights that it frosted. So that created some interesting effects. And okay. I think the secondaries came through um, as far as, like you said, crop potential better than we thought, you know, at the beginning of the season, because usually we're saying what about um, a third to, if you're lucky, possibly two thirds. I don't know if even that. I think it was up to a half. I think it was a third a to half, a half. Yeah, third to a half. And, you know, that's generally what we're telling our guys and were. And it looks like, you know, they did better because even the guys with the secondaries wow. are saying, that, you know, I'm surprised that that how much I have, even if I get hit. I mean, honestly, what it sounded like in our region was, you know, half of 16 tons to the acres, eight tons to the acre. Yeah. <laughs> it's what some of it was. So, but anyway, back to, back to the rest of the state. What's. Yeah. So what I can say is that I think the crop potential was well set after, after we got past winter and, um, and past the, the threat of spring frost or freeze. Uh, and, um, and then it, I wish I had some numbers here. I wish I had some uh, weather data to, to kind of, you know, support my general, um, general observations, but it, it got warm quick and then it cooled off a bit. Um, and then, it, then, you know, I think in general, it was a pretty warm and dry period throughout June, you know, June, May, June, I do remember it being somewhat rainy, uh, from what I recall during bloom into early fruit set and maybe even a little bit after that. So the critical, uh, period of cluster protection between bloom and, and marble or bunch closure. I do have, remember here having some rain events during then. Uh, but then as you came into July, it was a really, it was pretty warm and dry July. Uh, and then August came and August, I think has been a challenge for not just, uh, I don't want to call it South Southeast PA as this, as if it's the only region that's getting this weather. I know the Finger Lakes, uh, and, uh, probably parts of Maryland and New Jersey have been seeing some of this, this rain that's come about in August. So some sites I've, I've heard, you know, anywhere from eight to 11, 12 inches in August. Yeah. And, and we, our period there was uh, July for us. That was really wet. We had a really wet July. We had up to then our June was pretty dry. And then we got into July and that was really wet. And then August was uh, July and August were warmer here. I mean, than than we usually see. And um, uh, I guess August we had the, the thunderstorms come through. So we had a mixture there. I think with the amount of rain, but, but I think we got timely rains so that our, our berry size now is pretty good. Yeah. Looking at the most recent data and it, it follows from last week as well. So, so I think we're in the tail of, of the berry curve chart, you know, they're not going to substantially increase anymore, but that tail might wag one way or the other, depending on rainfall, but we're at 3.68 grams in the latest sample. And I think it was three, six, six last week. So that's, almost three quarters of a gram larger than average but you're talking concords now right concords right. and but even looking at some of the other varieties where we take samples and a lot of those are hybrids not vinifera um higher than average berry size as a percentage maybe not as extreme as concords you know niagara's are almost four and a half grams 
Um, certainly the ones that are most likely to respond to rainfall and have variability in in berry size are the ones that sized up the most but but it's really across the board it, you know we were on the verge of a drought and right before it was going to matter for berry size that rain came in and i don't know that it's necessarily good for ripening or certainly maybe not wine quality uh, because we're going to have to try to ripen these really large berries and it's it's probably going to be difficult but you know, if we get some timely weather now, because it is only the 16th of September, we have a couple of weeks where we could have some really nice weather or not so great weather. Um, then you'll end up with some a good quality crop that's significantly larger because of berry size. So if we get lucky, it, it'll work out really well. So now, Kane, with with again the southeast, because we keep <laughs> we keep jumping in here, and and uh, a lot of the people in our podcasts, you know, have. have heard about the Lake Erie region. Yeah. So they're probably more interested in. <laughs> so what did that August rain do for you? I guess is my first question. Yeah. So well, let me back up and say that again, I wish I had some uh, numbers to go with my recollection, probably my poor recollection. I, I do recall uh, some folks some conversations happening about the fact that nights were warmer than, 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 uh, Typical, and and I don't know if that's a trend we're going to see just because of, uh, you know, just the the changing climate. Uh, but, but there was warm nights, and temperatures were I were pretty warm in July and in in August, and and I think June as well. Uh, but again, I wish I had like historical averages, and then this year to kind of be more you know put things into better context. But I don't. But the 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 big the big topic as of late is the August rains, and and that's the post Ida rain that came through, and then there was another three to five inch system that came through. Uh, I think a week after that, I remember cause the post Ida rain happened on a Wednesday. And then the next Wednesday, there was another three to five inch bolus of rain that, that came across. And so what, what, that's, what that has done is, is made, it, uh, it, it made, it's made some of the earlier whites, the aromatic whites. A lot of these cultivars are fairly thin skinned. Well, I shouldn't say thin skinned. I mean, it's, I don't know if anybody's ever measured the berry thickness on these versus other cultivars, but we think they're thin skinned because they rot pretty easily, right? So things like uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon, um, the, the Pinots, the Pinot Gris, the Pinot Noirs, uh, these uh, I'm sure Vignoles for those that have that, uh, th those are, uh, you know, I've seen a, lot, a fair amount of sour rot out there, uh, far more than Botrytis. Uh, I see some Botrytis, but sour rot by far is, is more of the culprit that I've seen. Where you go out there, you see fl uh, fruit flies, whether they're spotted wings or softler or not, I don't know. But you see fruit flies, you smell the vinegar, the acetic acid smell when you put your face in a canopy. And so those are the things that I'm seeing. And then to a lesser extent, I, see, I've, I haven't seen as much rot in things like Albarino and Chardonnay. Um, so Chardonnay has been the poster child, in, at least in my mind, uh, especially when I started in viticulture 15 years ago, the poster child for, you know, uh, being a disease magnet, right? And then as, as I get on in my career and I look at other cultivars, Chardonnay looks pretty good next to some of these cultivars. It's a very resilient cultivar, which is why it's so well, well planted, I think, is because it has good name recognition. And then as far as a, a white a white vinifera goes, it's actually not that disease sensitive in terms of rot. 
compared to some of these ones that I just mentioned, the Sauvignon Blancs and, and the Pinot, Pinot Gris, they, they, they can, they can uh, get rot pretty quickly. So, it, so that's it, what I've seen. At this point, are those being, are yeah. some of those varieties being harvested to try to curtail that rot or do they yeah. need to ripen? Yeah, so here's the good news is that and none of this, it's not like I've walked in the vineyards and it's only rot. It's just, I see rot, you know, and in what percent and what severity and magnitude, I could only guess. But uh, it's not like it's terrible, but it's there. And so that adds a stressor for folks that are like, when should we harvest this? Mm -hmm. And the good news is that a lot of the folks are going, to, they've already harvested it or we're going to harvest it soon. So when that last bolus of rain came in, I think it was a week or two now. I mean, they were, they were already approaching harvest for some of these cultivars. Some folks will harvest Pinot for sparkling. So that's early. Pinot Gris is a relatively early cultivar. And so these cultivars weren't that far off from harvest. I think it was just a matter of, of you know, trying to get the rain to, to stop for the sun to shine and just to not let things progress, but stop things dead in their tracks so that that fruit can hang, maybe get another, you know, brick or two, and then maybe see that pH come up a little bit, TA go down a little bit, and then pick it before, you know, the next, you know, severe weather uh, came through. So that's the good news is that it, it's, it, it was all, it's not like they had to hang on to these cultivars for another month and a half. You know, they wouldn't anyways in a, in a perfect year. They were ready. Now, now the first thing I think of when you, you sort of, one of the things about harvest date that really makes me think, and it might just be my perspective, um, is the sort of, uh, you know, the push and pull of the winery versus the vineyard. Uh, because a vineyard owner owner can always do better if they're allowed to harvest earlier. Um, it's it's like the best disease control there is. You don't even have to spray if you harvest early enough, practically. <laughs> but but you can't make wine out of it. <laughs> um, yeah. And we see that a lot around here in terms of trying to define harvest dates and coming up with criteria, because the wineries buy a lot of juice from vineyard owners. Is it different down there? Like it, it's the same people, like the person who's growing the vine is also the one, not always obviously universally, but do you see a lot of sort of vineyard owned production? So they, they get to make that decision for themselves. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of it is a state fruit that they're, right. they're, they make the, they make the harvest decisions and then it's, it's going right into their cellar on the same site, you know? So that's typical. Uh, I think there's much fewer cases of an independent grower in the mm -hmm. Southeast than there are maybe in the Northwest. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a so, huge market advantage in terms of, I mean, it's not easy to try to manage all that stuff, but just, so, so if you want to go ahead and, and harvest some low bricks because you start to scout and see something, that's a great management strategy. But as long as you know how to deal with it in the cellar, because that's, that'll be the next step, of course. So, right. you know, you can't, you obviously can't harvest something that's, that's not ripe at all, but you can, you can play those edges and blend and stuff like that. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it does give you, while growing grapes is a risk, uh, regardless of where it is. I mean, it's a risk in California, you know, it's, it's a risk here. Uh, so regard like growing grapes is a risk because it's farming and farming, the nature of farming is, is a risk because you're at the mercy of nature. 
there are some advantages and you just talked about the one advantage. If you grow it well, then you don't, you don't have to worry about a buyer saying, you know what, I can't sell to you at the last minute because that happens sometimes, right? You have your crop and you know, you can have it if you want it, or you could sell some if tank space is limited or you have a back supply or, or back stock of a certain wine style that, you know what, I can come off a few tons of this because we don't need as much this year. So it does have its advantages. And as you say, Kevin, one of them is saying, okay, I can pick some of this early knowing that I can use this to blend or we're going to make sparkling with this. Um, But you're right. I mean, that's, so that's one of the things is, is, is harvest decisions um, are dictated a lot by, you know, I I think wine quality in mind, having a a wine, certain wine quality in mind and and some cultivars, I think it is typical to harvest it with a bit of rot in it, just, just because of our, the human nature of our climate. So I don't think like when a little rock, comes up it's like oh geez it's a bad vintage i mean it's that's just the way of the game in, in human climate sometimes especially with some cultivars no i mean i think when we look at vignoles around here because we've got a similar climate in some ways worse because by the time we're we're ripening some of these varieties we don't get any growing degree days anymore so they have to like we need a hundred more growing degree days that might be a couple weeks by the time we're trying to ripen especially something that's a red but um you know, it gets to the point where we're scouting for rot sort of as a bar- a barometer for harvest. Like we want this variety to hang on as long as we possibly can. And when we start to see rot and check the forecast, we know that we could cross a road and wreck a vintage. So that's when we take care of it and harvest. And that's, I mean, all varieties are not like that, but in our climate around the Lake Erie region, vignoles that are tight clustered, they get to a point where you know next week that they're not gonna be harvestable. And this week they're fine. Yeah. And to me, yeah. So to me, rot, like the presence of rot is just another like added stressor or, or uh, decision maker of harvest, if you will. If rot's not there, that's not one of the deciding factors. But tank space could be or the fact that they have to pick something else next week could be. But then when there's rot in there and those clusters and then, of course, weather comes into play because if rot's there and they spray something to stop it in its tracks, dry it up and there's no predicted rain in 10 days then all of a sudden that rod is, you know, it's not going to change. But then if another bolus of two to three inches come in and then, you know, something that fruit might be more compromised. And so it's just another one of the things to add to the, you know, the complex, uh, the complexity of harvest decisions, you know, is, but again, in this case, most of those cultivars, I think would be harvest by mid-September anyways, in a typical year. I talked to some growers of some of these rot sensitive cultivars and um, they said last year they had very, very, uh, hardly any rot at all, if any, in some of these cultivars. So just, just, you know, vintage can be a huge factor and when the rings come can be a huge factor too. Okay. So uh, now- I talked to people that had Cayuga, Cayuga white, which we all consider to be a pretty bulletproof cultivar, oh, yeah. um, you know, berries were splitting and, and sour rot. Now, not as bad, not bad, but, but it was there and that's just atypical. So, Cayuga, even Cayuga has it can have its downfalls. And, and one of the pitfalls I actually heard from a, a veteran grower of Cayuga is that its berries are susceptible to splitting. Well, now, staying along those same lines, you said uh, a lot of these whites, you know, that were splitting or getting rot were near harvest. What about some of the later varieties? How are they holding up? And what's the, I mean, there has to be a lot of concern, I would think, with growers down in the southeast concerning that 
Yeah. So, yeah, I was, thanks for, for bringing that up, Andy, because I wanted to talk about that. Um, just to finish up the whole, to summarize what I said about the rains and, and the early uh, kind of rot, because most of the early stuff tends to be rot, rot sensitive, the Pinots, the, the Sauvignon Blancs and things like that, Vignole. Um, but I've talked to growers too that were really happy with those this year. Let me back up and say all those growers that even had rot were happy with them. Uh, but I've talked to growers too that uh, in, on certain sites, they said they, they didn't have much rot at all. So, so that's nice. And, and one of those growers is actually in South Central PA. And um, they, I've seen pictures of their Pinot Gris and Chardonnay and it looks very clean. And, and um, so again, it's all about that microclimate. And I think in general, South Central can be rainy, but I think the Western part of the state can also be a lot drier than the Eastern part of the state. Uh, I, I bet that would be a trend that, that you guys have seen and we could probably pull out from historical weather is that the Western part of the state tends to be a little bit drier than, than the Eastern part. So, um, Andy, you, you asked about later cultivars. So the later cultivars, so we'll just say Chardonnay may be the middle point. Chardonnay is gonna be probably next on people's radars. And then you get start getting into some of the really late uh, Gruner is actually a later white. Gruner Veltliner uh, tends to be harvested. It's not an early white, uh, maybe a little um, little later than most whites um, or some of the whites. Chardonnay is probably harvested around the same time. And then you get into the, the reds. Um, things like, of course, Marquette's been harvested mostly, but speaking of vinifera, uh, Merlot, Cabs, Cab Franc, Cab Sauve, um, those, those will be next. Uh, later still, probably early October. And then Petit Verdot is typically one of the last ones harvested. Those all, I think there's concern, Andy, but, but all the ones that I've seen are look very clean, uh, all, all of those. And so those cultivars tend to be more rot tolerant and resilient than all those other rot sensitive cultivars I mentioned. So that's the good news is that those aren't, I have high hopes that those won't fall apart and everything that I've looked at of any Bordeaux red looks clean and, and rot free at the moment. So, but there's still, yeah, there's still three to four weeks of, of season left for those. Yeah. Yeah, with, with that Ida and like you said, the system after that, I was, in my mind, I was thinking, boy, you know, the Southeast, South Central is going to be in trouble, you know, because we, we really didn't get that extent of rain. We got rain, but nothing like it missed us as far as um, from Ida and after that. So, yeah, in fact, that last rain that I was talking about, not this past Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, it skirted right south of uh, you guys. You guys, I mean, I looked at the weather in Erie and it was sunny in, in 75 and here we were getting three to five inches of rain. Now, now with Ida, were you seeing... I mean, obviously not everywhere, but were there any areas where it was enough rain to be damaging? Damaging to... Oh, like yes, yeah. Not other than just what I've already said in terms of just some rotting some disease pressure, okay. Disease pressure. Um, and again, I, a lot of these growers are so on top of their disease management programs that uh, I saw, so I didn't even talk about Riesling yet. You know, Riesling is another one out there that, you know, again, Riesling, I think a lot of times gets lumped in with something that's really rot sensitive. But again, compared to the Pinots and some of these other uh, uh, whites, Riesling Riesling's pretty resilient. I mean, it, I've seen a lot of Riesling that looked pretty good. 
Um, so yeah, other than just a little bit of stress from there being rot out there and then, and because once rot's out there, then you have to say, okay, let's, let's stop it. Let's dry it up and then keep your eye on the forecast. When rot's not out there, you're not really worried about stopping anything. And I think, you know, you're, you're still concerned about the forecast, but you know that the, a rain event might start rot. In this case, once you already have rot, you know, it's going to probably be a domino effect. And with every you know, rain system that comes through, uh, you're hoping it's just, it dumps, you know, less than a half an inch or a quarter inch and then leaves because if it comes in and even if it's like a quarter inch every day and it's just, it's, it's, it's never, it never dries out, that can be hard. Whereas I think sometimes when it comes in, it drops a, a half inch or a quarter inch and then the next few days are really sunny. I think that can really set thing, reset the clock, if you will. But even, even if it's, overcast and, and just kind of drizzly for a few days, I think that can be bad for rot. And again, I'm not, that's kind of all anecdotal observational stuff. Now, Kane, are you starting to see some growers in the region adopt um, machine harvest? No. Still zero? Okay. Yeah, uh, I think there might be one. Uh, I talked to a grower that has somewhere between, I want to say, uh, and I know this is going to be a wide range, but they'll have 12 more acres coming into production uh, next year, the year after, because they planted those last year. Uh, they probably have close to 40, maybe 50 acres. And I, I, as I was harvesting a research plot there, uh, and it was Sauvignon Blanc, which is a hard hand pick because they're these grenade clusters and they're hard. it's hard to get your pickers and know where the cluster's even attached to the shoot. We were thinking, man, this is a great candidate for harvest uh, or machine harvest, just because it's so darn hard to pick by hand. And he actually said that they were uh, considering getting something because when you when you get to a scale of above 30, 40 acres of anifera, uh, that's a lot of hand picking. Yeah, I, I just asked because I know like labor is becoming an issue. And I think things like rot also make it more of an issue when you try to harvest really fast or whatever it is. And I do know that um, more so, I, I think probably as you get closer to the Atlantic, say in Virginia and maybe New Jersey, more of that has been um, moving towards machine harvesting. And uh, like Lakeview out of Canada, which is the Gregoire dealer for basically most of North America, other than California, um, they always have a machine in stock for that region because typically you know, somebody in August or September, they realize their harvest crew is going to be inadequate for what they need to accomplish. They sort of panic by a machine because it's cheaper than losing a vintage. Um, well, and so Gregoire makes some, you know, some unique harvesters that are specifically designed for, for that, that type of market. But the problem, of course, is, you know, you start talking about multiple inches of rainfall, it it doesn't walk through the vineyard the same way a human does either. So, so it can also complicate things depending on terrain. And we deal with that a lot here where stuff is not harvestable for the full four or five weeks because we have actually our machines are even worse. They're larger and faster. So, you know, you get five inches of rain on a side hill and you got to stay out of it for a while, for a while. Um, but yeah, so I didn't know if that was a concern of any of your growers, but it sounds like not yet. Well, Kevin, that labor issue is, is, Again, probably um, a discussion for another podcast. Absolutely, but, um, we don't have to get into that. No, change. but 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 no. um, just to reiterate that that this is what I'm hearing from a lot of growers that labor 
is a huge issue for them. And, um, you know, not just grapes, but hearing guys, apples and peaches just to get labor to pick the fruit is a huge issue. And uh, like you said, it's probably the same down in the Southeast, South Central. And like you said, that could be another whole podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think it'd be a nice podcast just to talk about labor and mechanization because um, well, I do see adoption of uh, pre-mechanical pre-pruning and a lot, there's lots of growers have invested in mechanical hedgers and leaf removal machines. So yeah, so it, the heart, depending on the scale of the vineyard, it makes sense to have a, a mechanical harvester, especially, I, I, you know, I mean, I think the, I think folks might be concerned about perennial vine health and, but I think some of these harvesting harvesters can be pretty gentle on vines. And uh, from, from what I understand, and, and if you're just taking the fruit from that vineyard uh, 400 yards to the winery, I don't think there's a lot of concern about degradation of fruit quality. They're not shipping it far. You're picking it and you're basically, uh, you know, on your way to fermenting right there, you know, um, right at the winery. So it's, well, it's and I would, I mean, I would have to imagine if you have 50 acres, it's not all worth $3,000 a ton too. You know, there's something, there's a blend of price points in there. So I, you know, I don't think anybody, you know, do I, I don't know for a fact that, that a, a harvester is going to decrease the quality of the most expensive wine grape out there. I'm not going to say it is because I don't know that I believe that, but if a grower believes that, or if they want that as a marketing story, you know, for your high end stuff, I don't see it as a problem. I, you know, I think it can undermine a business model for the cheapest stuff you sell. Like Cayuga White is probably a good example of, you know, that business model much more closely fits machine harvest, especially if you're trying to do it at scale. It's not two acres, it's, it's 20, 30, 50, whatever it is. But, but one of the things that's really changed is in the last 20 years, that's when modern harvesters arrived in the United States on the East. So now they're old, which means there's a very healthy used market. So the scale of adoption is, is a totally different thing than it was 20 years ago because there were only new machines then. And the only old machines, if they weren't built in the 70s, they were designed and the technology was from the 70s. <laughs> so so uh, there were definitely more valid concerns about wine quality and vine health with some of those machines. Um, but we've, we've sort of moved I, I couldn't know either. I mean, I, I'm almost positive there's some studies about handpicking versus har machine harvesting and, and its effect on must composition and, and wine sure. quality. And But at some point, as a farmer, from a practical sense, you have to take, you know, this, it's like this risk benefit type thing where, okay, uh, that machine will cover its cost in terms of how much I have to pay pickers to pick in a few years. I'm, I'm just, I'm willing to take the risk of, uh, you know, potentially injuring some of these vines due to, due to machine harvesting. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, trying to prove to yourself that the musk quality is good enough. So I think, you know, you could, they could probably do some on, in seller experiments to, to validate for themselves that the, the quality of, of crop hasn't gone down. But that's like any vineyard practice, you know? I mean, if you go and hedge it up, I mean, you're risking damaging some vines. If you, if you, you know, use a, um, a de-suckering tool, you're risking injuring trunks. So 
every practice has its own risks. And, and I just think that harvesting the ability to get a crop off, like right now on a split second decision is to me would look very pleasing, you know, as a, as a vineyard owner. I was going to say that's uh, a nice option to have in your toolbox, because especially, you know, like we've been talking about hurricanes like Ida coming up. And if you got to get that crop off quick and you've got, you know, a decent amount of acres, boy, being able to go in there and, and machine harvest those as compared to get the crew together and, and, you know, get that crop off. Boy, that's a huge difference because, yeah. you know, a couple of days can make a huge difference once that those weather patterns set in and the rot starts to take over. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so so we should. Let, let's just let's just make a little statement here that neither of us are paid by any mechanical harvesting companies. We're just <laughs> <laughs> we're just discussing. Well, yeah. Another disclaimer: this is a podcast, so we're allowed <laughs> to speak in generalities and, and, and I give opinions. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wasn't even going to go down this road. I think it's a good road, probably for a future podcast, if there are concerns about labor in the region. But but really, what I was trying to figure out is if you know because what we see with heavy rainfall is that becomes a concern for machine harvests in certain conditions you know our growers that are on side hills and heavy clay soils they have to be very careful to time harvest correctly around rainfall so um you know we've seen i don't know maybe one percent of our acreage in wet years is goes unharvested because of challenges with that planning it's it's not a significant amount but i just wondered if that issue was creeping up and and if there are still no machine harvest harvesters in the region obviously it's not <laughs> so that, that brings up another point about like these these rains that have been coming through and and from the get-go i think the, the one of the most fundamental things about viticulture and especially in wine production is site selection right and so a lot of these growers that i work with it's not like in the Lake Erie region, and, and, and I'm not trying, this is just being, making observations. The Erie region was planted and, you know, it's juice grapes. So, you know, you're worried about bricks and, and maybe color and some other things that's not really as dissected as wine grapes are. And so down in the Southeast, I think folks, a lot of folks chose their sites, right? Uh, or someone chose it before them and then they bought that operation. So they took the time to be really meticulous about site selection. And so when rains come through, if you did your, your due diligence in choosing the right site, well, hopefully it sheds water quick and is, is um, you know, open to prevailing air movement and winds. And so all these things, uh, site selection can help, uh, help out a lot, you know? I think I think someone said a, a great site can make good vintages, great and bad vintages, pretty good, you know. So it it really does make a difference. And a lot of these sites I'm talking about that I've that I've been visiting are on really really uh, well positioned sites. Um, so I have I have a hot take with absolutely no science to back it up, but but observationally, what what some of what we are seeing is our heavier soils look like they might be positioned to be better sites than our lighter soils. Um, so this was not the case before. Lighter soils were always worth more in our region for obvious reasons, they're well-drained. Um, but we've added more drainage. We've had a history of having a lot of in-field drainage. And with heavy soils that are healthy that can hold water and also drain well if they have drainage, we're seeing less effects of drought stress 
even though we're seeing and we're seeing more droughts now in in the climate so i don't know if you've seen enough changes in your climate so that the best sites are are potentially at risk of not being the best sites anymore your industry's young enough so i'm guessing probably not you know it's not relying on climate from 100 years ago <laughs> but um well, let's put it this way too i mean you bring up a good point is is as you know as things change here climate wise and if we're on the trajectory we're on are are are, are the the sites that are good now are going to be good in three decades or two decades. Again, if we continue on the trajectory of warmer with longer periods of drought and more intense storms. Right. I, very, very few of the sites that I've seen since I've been in, in viticulture um, in the last 15 years, be it my time in Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania. Um, I've, I've haven't seen too many sites that are, I would consider extremely low vigor sites, right? They're not, they're not rocky. They're not, it doesn't look like, you know, they're, they're not 10 year old vines that look like three year old vines because they're so drought stressed or something like that. So I, I have to make a hunch to say that, no, I don't think that they'll mm -hmm. become bad sites because Good. I don't think they're that lean to begin with. You know what I mean? And probably your rootstock doesn't hurt anything either in terms of making them more resilient which is not a, right. a lot of our region is, is own rooted or of our varieties are own rooted. So we're a lot more susceptible to, to drought stress between being own rooted and, you know, stressing the vines out with a lack of vigor to begin with, um, with some high yields, you know, and no irrigation where we're susceptible in a way that at a lot of the sites in the Southeast probably are not. And I will say too, Kevin, that, since you bring it up, I will say that new vineyards are some, like I, I know a grower that irrigated, bought irrigation equipment to irrigate their new vineyard. Um, so, um, and that was a, a game time call. I don't think they planned on that at the beginning of the season. So with these, if we do get longer drought periods, I think it's a word to the people that are planting to, you know, be ready, be prepared because I think new vineyards, you know, the first two to two to three years are probably the times when vines are the most susceptible to drought stress. And um, yeah. With, with own, I can say with own rooted concords and natives, if you have uh, natives in general, when they're own rooted, if you have access to water in a way so that uh, irrigation is, is sort of affordable, like you're not digging a $50,000 well and going down 250 feet or something crazy, but you have access to inexpensive water, um, in our region, 20 years ago, irrigating young vineyards paid for itself um, because typically 20 to 30% of the time you lost a full crop. Now, it was a full crop that you didn't have to take care of when you lost it. It was just you had small vines. It took you one extra year to get to cropping those vines. Uh, and the costs of getting to that extra year are a lot less than trying to maintain a producing vineyard. But all of your working capital was stuck working for an extra year, and that justified irrigation. Um, you know, those variables might change with rootstock and everything, but but I'm guessing in, under the right conditions, it's something that if growers are considering it, they're probably seeing similar numbers in terms of delays to production, and that's what's driving it. And when it delays it a year, I would have to imagine whether it's Concord, Niagara, or 
Pinot Noir, it makes sense to try to avoid that delay with the cost of an irrigation system. I would think it would translate. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'll, I'll, let me just tie up a couple of things. And then I think Andy wanted to ask a couple of pest management questions about maybe what's going on with insects. Um, I don't know. Maybe you guys have heard about the spotted lantern fly. I don't know. It's, it's some, that's, that was on my agenda. <laughs> yeah, I know, Andy. I know. But here's what I'll say about, about what's going on. And I mentioned it. I didn't follow up. The, the crop potential was set pretty nicely due to the lack of cold injury events and then the, the in general uh the frost didn't really hurt too many if anybody that i can tell uh and then this rains come through so i think we're going to see a large crop and i think um some of the growers i've been talking with are going to see the, the crops are a little little higher at least in the earlier harvested cultivars than than they've seen uh even last year which was a pretty decent vintage for crop so that's that's a that's a good thing, and and again, even these earlier earlier cultivars that are a little bit more raw sensitive, I think they're good quality. I think it's been a good vintage. I just think there's been a couple things that have made the harvest time for earlier cultivars a little bit more challenging than they'd like to. But I think because of the site selection, because of the good management and the textbook viticulture, uh, I think they're getting through just fine. And there's going to be some great wines produced uh, across the board. Um, Back to site selection too. I think site selection is one of those things where, uh, again, in the in the southeast, you have lots of these little microclimates. Like I think of Erie. I'm from there. I'm from that area. So I think of that as like the coastal plains of Pennsylvania, right? It's 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 very, you know, if you measure temperature, and again, I, I don't want to be too general, but if you measure the temperature out where Andy lives in Fairview and northeast uh, it, 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 it could probably change but i mean it's all relatively flat at the same elevation and you can make generalities whereas in the southeast there's so many and andy you're from the southeast so you know this there's so many little nooks and crannies even in chester county and in lancaster where some sites are are low lying with high organic matter some sites are convex and, and relatively high but still have good organic matter um and in a little bit more um structure to them so where I'm getting at is I think I think over time folks will see cultivar choice kind of be dictated by the site of of you know the site that was selected. I know one grower in Chester County that has planted on a site that's very high organic matter, relatively flat, and they've changed they they their cultivar portfolio has evolved uh, over the last ten years that they've been been um, growing grapes because you can only manage things so much. And then at the, at the end of the day, you, it's like, it's just a mismatch of cultivar and site. So I guess that's just a trend that I think we'll see more of is folks will say, you know what, this cultivar is just not working here and they'll, they'll count their losses and put in something that will work there, you know? And, and so I think that's an important thing to say. Well, and I think ideally if we're talking viticulture, isn't that what we ideally push that you have to, you have to select the cultivar for the site? rather than just throw in what you you like or say a winery asks you to grow or whatever. Um, you know, it only goes so far. And uh, past, there's, there's a point where it doesn't matter. You can't get the best quality or you can't get it right unless you have the cultivar and the site match. So I mean, yeah, because I think management, good management, textbook management, is I see I see it I shouldn't say ubiquitously applied, but most of the growers that I work with and are engaged with our team, 
I don't think there's big holes in their pest management program and their canopy management program. So at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, here's our site, here's our cultivar. We've managed it uh, to the best of our possible ability. And yet, you, you know, you still might not get that, um, get what you're looking for. So that's, that's a good sign that it's time to rethink that cultivar probably. Yeah, it's definitely really challenging. I mean, we have a lot of data about how consumers don't care a whole lot about wine quality. Um, they need something that isn't terrible. Uh, and other than that, they're really looking when they walk into a local winery for really good customer service. And they're very picky about customer service. Like the way you think they would be picky about wine quality, like the difference between this fine Pinot Noir and that fine Pinot Noir, that's how they feel about customer service. Um, mm. They don't about wine quality, but the one sort of wild card there, and I think Kane, you mentioned it a little while ago, just in passing, but is is recogni brand recognition and um, varieties of grapes have brands and are recognizable. And that's the difficult thing to overcome is that consumers get stuck on a, and value very highly a particular variety. And so, so you can try your way to, you know, market out of that. And there are a lot of things you can do. Uh, and I think you should, as a winery owner, I think marketing your way out of that problem is, is money well spent, but you do have to be very cognizant of the fact that it's not going to work on everybody and there is value to certain brands, but that, but you know, you can pick them. I mean, people recognize Riesling the same way they recognize Cab Sauv just because, just because they're stuck on uh, certain varieties doesn't mean they're stuck on one. And, uh, you know, those trends will come and go too. So. That's well said. In other words, I think you said it right that there's probably a, you know, a handful of cultivars that are known across the, the world of wine drinkers. Um, I was just hanging out with my neighbors the other day and we had a Saparavi. Uh, they never heard of Saparavi. Right. Um, and, and nor has my neighbor's brother, who's a sommelier, he's never heard of Saparavi. And so <laughs> you know, I, I think the point is, is that, you know, I, Sauvignon Blanc, people know that too, just like they do Cab or Riesling or Pinot or Syrah or, or, or Merlot. I mean, so you're right. I think there are those choices that you can make that might be more fitting on your site and also be recognized in the tasting room. I will say that I can't, again, there's lots of folks that distribute in the state and some through the PLCB, through some through grocery stores, some through restaurants, but I don't know of a winery that's solely uh, based solely on distribution, right, in the state. So they, if people come to your tasting room, that's an opportunity, I think, to, to teach them about some of these cultivars that we use in our, our region that are, you know, more niche. And, and I, think, I think it'd be good to celebrate that fact that they are niche and you can't get them everywhere. And then when you make the customer feel like they're getting something special and unique, I think that it might open their eyes to something like, oh, there's something really interesting and unique going on in my own backyard. And you can't get this everywhere like you can at Cab or Merlot. Yes. Now, no, but, I, go we, ahead, Andy. Before we get any further, I just want to throw this in since we're on this podcast and that I am saying that I disagree with you, Kevin, on that people don't care as much about quality. I, I have to disagree with you on that one. So this is a, a repetitive study out of Cornell. They've done a lot of surveys about wine tasting room experiences, and it, it's very repeatable. It happens again and again. If, if you try to truly sell them something bad, it, it, 
it's a really bad idea to do that. That will become recognized as a poor experience and will undermine the strength of your winery. But the difference between a very good wine and a very, very good wine is not very important to their experience or the amount that they're willing to spend in your winery. Well, I think this topic would be, and maybe again for further podcast, uh, Kane and Kevin, we could um, bring in Kathy Kelly with some of her marketing. Absolutely. To see what, Mm -hmm. you know, some of that research or maybe uh, some of the uh, people from Cornell that have done some of that. That would be interesting. And it might be interesting to expand on that research and try to define define where that line is, where it becomes too bad. Because at some point, it's actually easier to sell an okay cab than it is a Saparavi. Even if that's, even if that is ideal for the site and it's like a superb wine, if that cab is okay, it's going to sell and it's probably going to sell at a higher price point because it's recognizable. Now you try to market your way out of it or the cab is terrible and it's, you know, I don't know, 15 bricks or rotten or something that you need to avoid. We, we know that you need to avoid that, but we, but really defining what that line is, I think would be super valuable to the wineries. I think you're, you're right, Kevin. In fact, the story you just said is something that a grower told me, a grower that owns a winery and sells it is, you know, we sell our cab. He's like, I'm not happy with it. But right. see, here's the difference too, is Andy, I don't know if you're thinking bad is in technically flawed because there's a difference between preferred style or in flawed wine. So if it's flawed, like technically flawed, it has SO2, it's corked or whatever, it has bread. That's one thing. But I think what Kevin's talking about is sound made wines, technically sound wines yep. that just might be a little different. Those are, those are the ones that probably consumers don't really care all that much that about. To me isn't, that to me isn't quality. In other words, when you're talking quality, in my mind, it's okay. This is eh, so-so. It's, it's bland. It's flat. It has no taste versus, you know, something that, that is even a good wine. You know what I mean? But quality, that's what, when you said that, Kevin... I was interpreting quality as you meaning that. Well, that, that, that people aren't concerned with that. And, and they are. They want a, a, a good quality wine as far as, you know, what tastes good to them, not flawed. But again, it's, it, I think we're, we're splitting hairs when you're talking about a, a really fine wine versus, a, 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 you know, a good wine. Um, so I, I, I think we would have to bring in some people um, <laughs> on the market again. I think what I would say, what I would say is if you're thinking about selling a wine that maybe the winemaker's not happy with, maybe it's definitely not going to get rated by Parker or something like they would, sure. they would definitely not even rate it or it would be rated so low. You wouldn't want the rating, but like Kane said is correctly made and not flawed in a way that is perceivable by 90% of the public. Like if it's got Brett, it doesn't have enough Brett that most people can perceive it. Um, but like underripe can't, cab and maybe that's a bad place to go because some people genuinely like underripe cab and they recognize it but but um uh, overcrop riesling is a really good example where it was traditionally defined as low quality and overcrop riesling is just different and consumers don't care whether they don't even if they have a preference for one if you give them the wrong one it does not impact in a significant way 
their willingness to pay or, or to return to, to the winery. So I think maybe that's the important part is they perceive the wine as slightly lower in quality. Like maybe there's a different wine that they like more, but if the customer service is better, it doesn't matter. So they're going to, so if they, if you, if you're, if you're, if you've got a winery and you've got another one right next door and the one right next door, the customer says the wine is better but the customer service is not good. They're gonna go get the wine that they don't like as much and spend more on it because of the customer service. And I think that's really the point. So it's not how we define quality when they're asking the survey type question, it's literally how the customer defines it. So they don't think it's great wine, they think it's pretty good wine, or, or maybe they just think it's good and that's enough. Now, if they say it's terrible, like I said a couple of times already, if they say it's terrible, that's a problem. <laughs> so, yeah, it'd be it'd be cool to get the, the those Cornell folks who are who develop the data that you're uh, yeah. explaining right now, and also you know like uh, Anna Catherine or Chris or Molly who could talk more about like what's flawed and, and what 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 are common flaws that consumers might perceive in wines. You know that'd be interesting to me. But we've like a true true to form in a podcast. We've gone to, into a foxhole that none of us are experts <laughs> on. I, I was going to say I mean, we, we're all over the board. Didn't go as well, we planned, did it? Well, I mean, if we get down to the definition of quality, we know we're going down a rabbit hole that we're <laughs> never going to come out of. <laughs> but uh, I've said this before. Kane wasn't here when I said this. Um, this our target audience right now uh, is our growers who are in the midst of harvest or are about to begin harvest next week. And they are driving around in circles for 8 to 24 hours a day. Um, so our goal is for you to get as much content as you can in your tractor or in your harvester. So if you need help um, listening to this podcast on your smartphone or your mobile device, we'd be happy to help you. Uh, we're trying to keep these podcasts a little bit longer than we did in some of the other series because we know you've got more tractor time. The, the, our intent is not that you get home from harvesting after 12 hours and sit in front of your computer and look at our faces for the next two after that. Like, you should go to bed or get some dinner or something. Um, <laughs> but, but we do know that this, this information is interesting and it's valuable and you've got a lot of time where you're free to listen to a lot of content. So um, we encourage you to, to listen while you harvest. And if you need help with that, um, we can help you with that. And we know that we're up to about 60% of you doing exactly what I said. You know, you're using a smart device, you're listening on the run. And we like to hear that because we know you're going to listen more and we know you're going to get a lot out of it. We know you're, we're not going to be competing for your time with dinner and sleep. And we don't want to try to compete with that. Um, we don't think we can win. <laughs> so if, if you yeah. need help with that, reach out, we, we can help. Um, if you want to hear about something in particular, also reach out. We'd be happy to cover it in a future podcast. I want to thank Dr. Kane Hickey for joining us. Uh, Andy, thanks again for, for joining as well. That was your insight and questions were much appreciated, uh, appreciated. And we will be back next week with some more as uh, our Concord harvest in the Lake Erie region gets underway. Thanks again. Andy, are you going to wave goodbye? It's an audio podcast. I do that. All, all <laughs> I my audio podcasts. <laughs> I'll see you next week. <laughs>